All right, everybody, this is our, one of our special Gen Con episodes. You are not going to get a, an individualized introduction for each of our Gen Con episodes, so this is the one that you'll hear over and over again. I am at Gen Con right now, uh, or was just at Gen Con, covering all kinds of things from Wizards of the Coast. I'm also going to be attending uh, the Kobold Press seminars, uh, going to some press events and more, possibly some interviews and that kind of stuff, so expect some more of that coming out, including this episode. And don't forget, these are relatively unedited. All I'm doing is slipping in the intro to the episode and the ad from our wonderful sponsor, Noble Night Games. Otherwise, it is pure, unadulterated Gen Con material. And speaking of unadulterated, that means we're not responsible for the content. Some of it may be risky. We're looking at you, Matt James. (laughs) Uh, We'll try to outline that in the show notes, so pay attention. And remember that large, sometimes loud convention rooms or exhibit halls or giant floors where there's a recording going on and a thousand people standing around, that will impact some of the audio quality. It may not be the best audio quality, but I guarantee you that the content will be the best content from Gen Con. And as we move into the the content that you're looking for... The, the thing that you're tuning in for here, we should mention, again, our sponsor is Noble Knight Games at noblenight.com. Check them out. They're a great game store specializing in out-of-print materials, but also carrying the newest in, in game books and, and other materials. Uh, so check them out and make sure to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. And with that, enjoy the coverage from Gen Con. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all, and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight, then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade, so you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Wow, I'll go today. And be sure to tell them the Tome Show sent you. Rather than accidentally use it to give you updates on my pets. (laughs) (laughs) With a dog falling off the bed incident that might involve an injury, it's not clear. So, waiting for word from Seattle. That's true. Someone just listening in heard the just daily fell off the bed. They yeah. think, God, what are they doing? They're letting their kids fall yeah. off the bed. <laughs> he's kind of a kid. He's like a he's like a kid who can take more. Like I don't know, gets himself into more physical trouble, but can probably handle it better than a kid of the same age. So, anyways, these guys know I'm just crazy. I'm not a dog on my dogs. So. He's going to be the guy when he retires that he's going to live in a house with like 20 dogs, yeah. 30 cats. I'll be, when I, I, my, I, my corpse will not, like, when I die, they will just find a skeleton that has been stripped of all flesh by the So speaking of skeletons stripped of all their flesh by ravenous dogs, uh, welcome to the DD Next Q&A. <laughs> Just kind of, it's sort of funny to, to do this the first one Saturday at 2 p.m. Because if if you've been here for the entire con, you might be in the same state we are, where you might be a little strung out, haven't been getting much sleep, doing a little too much gaming and other stuff. If you're here for the first day, though, and you're fresh, you definitely have the drop on us because we've been here for three days now and we're all exhausted. So if you have any crazy questions you want to ask, now might be the time. So I'm 
relying on Jeremy to stop me from saying anything I'll regret. So. <laughs> I'll be yank, yank the yeah, leash. <laughs> the big uh, cane just pissing <laughs> off stage. So uh, why don't we start with introductions. Uh, since I'm talking, I'll just start with me. Uh, I'm Mike Marles. I'm the senior manager of the R&D team uh, for Wizards of the Ghost on Dungeons and Dragons. It would be cool if I get that every time I introduce myself. That's like my goal. The uh, supermarket. Hello, person of the supermarket. I'm Mike. So, that should be kind of creepy. Why don't we start down with Chris? And I'm Chris Perkins. I am a senior producer of Dungeons and Dragons. I that which means that once we decide to do a product, I'm the guy who makes sure it happens. And I also do a uh, DM stint for the guys at Acquisitions Incorporated. Uh, and we do a series of podcasts. In fact, we just put up a new series recently, leading up to our live game at PAX in Seattle. Which is awesome. All right. I am Jeremy Crawford. I'm the lead game developer and editor for Dungeons & Dragons. So I'm the one responsible for what goes inside the products. I'm Ronnie Thompson. I'm an advanced designer on Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, in addition to working on DD Next, I also helped design Lords of Waterdeep and the expansion in Scoundrels and so forth. And if you read the DD Next QA column, I write that column. So I want to start off with a little bit of recap of where we've been, uh, where we are, and where we're going. Um, so we announced on Thursday that our playtest packet releasing in September is the final public playtest packet in the manner in which we've been releasing packets. So last year, uh, it was like April, was it April released? Or May? Somewhere in that range. It's Saturday, Gen Con, so. Last year sometime, uh, we released our first packet. And if you've been, how many people here started with, like, saw the first packet and downloaded it? Okay, so just great. How many people have downloaded the latest packet? Okay, great, so you guys have seen the changes we've undergone, where, in some of the online columns I write, you know, I kind of laid out our two big goals for the entire game. You know, was to make a game that really captured the feel of Dungeons and Dragons. You know, where it's like if you played D&D at any point in the past 40 years, you could look at this game and recognize a lot of the elements. So yeah, this is D&D. And then to really manage that complexity level. You know, any game that has a 40-year history behind it has a 40-year history behind it. There's a lot of stuff there. There's a lot of stuff that people grow used to. And the danger of any game that goes on for that long is you always run the risk of closing off the on-ramp. That you have a conversation with your audience, like you, know, you get to know your audience, you're making stuff to make them happy, but what can happen is you start to focus so much on your audience that you lose track of where your audience came from. And so, so much of the effort we put into the playtest has been to work with you guys in creating a game where we can make someone who's been playing DD for a long time happy, but we can keep that tether line, that lifeline to the people who want to play DD but aren't playing yet, the people who don't realize yet that DD is the greatest game ever invented, that, but they're gonna find out, and make sure that they can come in and they can start playing and they can become the guy who's been playing DD for 10 years or the girl who's been playing DD for 20 years. You know, it's, it, it's to keep that accessibility open. Because in a lot of ways, that's really what we've lost in the past 10, 10 plus years. That we had a game that was making people who were really into D&D very happy. But we could see in our own market research and what we're seeing in the marketplace that we weren't getting 
people who wanted to play D&D &D into the game. Like, I have to start trying to talk a billion times by a little saying I've developed, but it's, I've met more people who have told me they wanted to play D&D &D than people who are actually are playing D&D. And so a lot of what we've done is we wanted to create that bridge, but we wanted to make sure it was a bridge that was headed to the, the correct destination. And that's where the play test comes in, where we know what we're doing feels like D&D. It's true to the game. It's recognizably D&D that we're not losing people based on, well, this just doesn't feel like D&D anymore. Because then we've lost the essence of it. We've lost the heart and soul of the game, what makes it what it is, what's made it a success. And so it's been really great in the past year having that feedback helping to guide us where we can stay on course and know where we're going, but keep that path open and really build for the first time in a long time to get new players into the game, to get all those people who want to play. You know, I'm sure you guys know these people, they're probably at your gaming table, right? The guy who doesn't own a player's handbook and doesn't want to, like can't make their own character on their own, they have no sense of it, like it's overwhelmed by all the choices, it isn't sure what to do. People want to role play, and the rules are there to serve their role, but I think in some ways the rules became the purpose of the game rather than a part of the game. So that's really what we're working toward, and at this stage, we feel really confident based on the feedback we've gotten, that with each successive iteration, with one, I think was the time we made the road terrible in combat, was the one time we went backward. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> just testing, just checking, you know, yeah, to make sure like no one's just asleep and just hitting like increasingly positive reviews. But the, uh, so we feel really confident now that we've hit a point where the game's looking good in terms of the big picture elements of it, you know, how things are arranged, that change in complexity from this, the entry point to the advanced game, where those aren't two different games, those are just two different expressions of the same game where you can have people who've been playing for decades, the new player can show up, build a dirt simplest fighter, and be, be good and useful and, you know, and can contribute to the game. It doesn't feel like they're losing out. And so really, after the next playtest packet, uh, assuming everything goes well, right, and, that's, and I think we feel really on track, we feel strong looking at the trends, uh, at, after that stage, it really becomes the detailed work of getting, getting a lot of the math stuff right. I think the number one thing I've heard from DMs in Hall D has been, the monsters are too weak. It's like, yes. <laughs> we, we know. In a lot of ways they are. So that's going to be the next. Like Once we know what characters can do, and once we know that generally people seem happy with the level of complexity in monsters, and how we're expressing a lot of monsters, uh, now we can kind of go back and say, okay, now let's get the hit points, the armor class, all that stuff right. Let's make sure things are scaling appropriately. You know, we have this idea of bounded accuracy, where we don't expect the numbers to grow much, but they still will in some ways grow. You know, if you're a fighter, fighters are really strong and they have, you know, good constitution, we expect, well, you should be as a fighter better at those kind of saving throws or checks compared to, say, the wizard, things like that. So a lot of it is getting that underpinning, the boring infrastructure pieces. You know, everyone likes a race car. Like, it's interesting to look at a race car and see how it was built. Learning how someone built a racetrack might not be as interesting, but we kind of have our cars built, and now we're going to go ahead and build the racetrack they're going to drive on. So that's really the main transition. It's not that the, the design is over or the testing is over. It's just entering a different phase, much more in a very iterative, just repeatable, like, okay, let's fight three bone claws of the fifth level party again and see where it goes, and let's do it again, or things like that. So a much more focused, rigorous, repeatable, and looking at the inputs and outputs kind of test. So, so that's essentially where we've been. Uh, I'd be lying if I said I thought this is where we'd end up in terms of the design. It's been a very interesting process. It's felt kind of like a conversation, and it's been a very fruitful one for us. Um, watching as things have changed and how they've evolved, I think, I mean, I don't think any of us would have guessed. Like, the goals haven't really wavered, but how we've gotten there has changed a lot 
Yeah. You know, our, our, the philosophy for everything we've been doing has been stable from the very beginning until now. But as Mike suggests, there have been many shifts in detail that have been inspired by the massive amount of feedback that we've received from all of you and the tens of thousands of other people who have participated in the playtest, making this easily the largest playtest that any tabletop RPG has ever had. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that really can't be emphasized enough. I mean, it, it is unprecedented the amount of feedback we have received. And so I want to just quickly thank all of you in, the, in this room for the part you've played in that, because the, the feedback you give us, we take very seriously. I have a, a standing series of meetings every week where we pick a piece of the game, whether it's a spell or a particular combat mechanic, and one of our developers will bring here is a collection of all the comments that we've gathered, both from our surveys as well as looking on forums like in EN World, uh, the Wizards forums, occasionally from RPG.net. Uh, and we go through the feedback, and th these meetings are called our, our development triage meetings, and we sift through all of it to see, okay, is there something we're missing? Uh, is there some angle that we haven't considered? And sometimes the solutions we come up with are long-term, so you may not see them yet in any of the public playtests, uh, but they are, they're in the mix. Uh, because again, this is the, the creation of this game is itself a long game. Uh, it, this, is, this is not a quickie. Uh, yeah. this, this, is, this is something that has required uh, endurance from us, and, and in many ways endurance from our playtesters, because we've never asked people to play a a shifting version of Dungeons and Dragons like this before. Yeah. Um, so again, we just can't can't overstate how much we appreciate your involvement, all the feedback that you give, all the excitement that you bring, because uh, it's been pretty contagious. Uh, there are people all over the place who are jazzed about D&D Next, and I think a lot of that is because of the playtesting that all of you are doing. So, Chris, do you want to throw in anything before we... Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, let's just jump into it. Right, no, right, do you want to take the floor? No, I think Jervis said everything that needs to be said. Uh, so thank you for making my job getting more hard. Seriously, that's great. Right, well, thanks for coming. I guess that's the thing. No, that's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mission accomplished. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, or best. Or best. Yeah. Best. So, um... I thought we'd open up to Q&A, though I, I, it's kind of funny, you, know, you get this sort of like, in some ways it's hard to think like what would be an interesting topic for us to talk about next. So I guess we'll just kind of, so what I'd like to do is if we could get Trevor, we have a microphone up here, if people want to queue up, and that helps us get a sense like right in here, and then Trevor, and if until we get questions, I mean if there's no questions to start with, I can kind of start just talking about some of the stuff we've done philosophically. This is called the Q and A. I know. But before, yeah. well, before I start, who is tweeting? Anybody? Tweeting? All right, because I can't now. <laughs> so you are going to tweet the Q and A, and I already asked. Yeah. 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 And, and while, while, while people consider questions you might want to ask, um, I'm just curious how many of you have had a chance to play uh, Assault on Candle Keep or Murder in Baldur's Gate here at Gen Con? Awesome. Nice. That's great. How many of you have had a look at the Ghosts and Dragons Beer Castle book? Oh, fabulous. <laughs> cool. That's great. So you said that the, the way things have gone uh, were not what you were kind of expecting initially. So what, what were you expecting initially? So there was like the optimistic view 
which would be like, oh, this is awesome, 100% approval, dot print, right? Okay, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, right. This, actually, that would probably be pretty scary. It's like, okay, there's a bug, clearly. Something is wrong if our first draft gets 100% approval. The biggest worry I had was, okay, so you guys ever familiar with the concept of an edition war? The edition wars and all that stuff. So, never heard of it. Never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> biggest worry was people were fractured and just there's no way to bring people together. And that was because are we really just doing like four different games? And the thing is, at the end of the day, like it's not even close to it. I mean, there's clearly people online who like to argue about this stuff, but there's not many of them, as it turns out. Like when you actually talk to 150 something or whatever, how much it is up to now, people say, "Hey, what do you think?" We're way past 150,000 yeah. playtesters at this point. The um, people generally want the same thing out of D and D. It's like people want the same, say, 80% out of D&D. They want a game that's open-ended, that when I feel like I can make a meaningful choice, and when I feel like I can make an interesting character. And now, how people define that can be different. Because some people would say, oh, my character's interesting because uh, I have an interesting backstory. You know, my character is a disgraced uh, dwarven MC, you know, who's like lost all his money. <laughs> I'm sorry, Rod. No, you yeah. really are laughing and get that. <laughs> so you might be, you know, like, oh, yeah. The, or you might say my character is interesting because I took a couple of special abilities and I have this kind of cool mechanical concept, right? And so people approach it in different ways, but the general direction is very similar. And then there's like maybe that 20% that can vary. And so what's been nice is we have been able to build a core that people are generally very happy with and that spans across, you know, because we ask people what edition do you play, which edition do you like the best, and things like that, and then been able to find, okay, the other 20%, we can capture that just by giving people options within that system. It isn't the case, and there's always people who are just, you know, we're never going to hit percent but there's always that sense of people do want the same core thing, and it's not like we have a super fractured audience and everyone's at each other's throats. I mean, that's, a lot of that is, I think, just the nature of forum communications, and not just kind of, or people have, have an axe to grind or whatever, and so, but generally, the young people want very similar things in the D&D. And the nice thing we've been able to do is we can kind of look back and see, well, you know, if this edition had a problem here or there, you can kind of see how it's buffing up against what people are looking for. So it's not something where it's just out of the blue. Like, you can construct a coherent argument of why certain things worked or didn't work in the past and how that maps to that. So we feel pretty confident that we're on the right path. But we kind of had to do some work, and that's a lot of the playtest was, of figuring out that path. So, yeah, so that was kind of like the best and worst. And so it's like that was kind of the fear, and the hope was that that wasn't the case, that it was, there was a cohesion to what people wanted from D&D. And it's been really good to find that cohesive core. Yeah, and I mean, just, just to restate it slightly, basically what we've discovered is people fundamentally love Dungeons and Dragons. And it's not about a particular version of it. It's people, when, when whatever version of D&D is true to the spirit of Dungeons & Dragons that's been in the game since its inception in the 70s, people dig it. Um, and so we have found overall that it just, we have fans of D&D. Um, Anecdotally, it's been exciting to watch people play at shows here and elsewhere and at encounters and see that no matter what edition they may have come from previously, that there's something about the new game that's appealing them on a fundamental level, that it's serving a base need. They may still quibble over the way certain things are done in the game, but they feel like it's true to D&D. &D. Yeah. And, and it's funny, there's a very material sign of our philosophy and also really embracing this fact that the community simply loves Dungeons & Dragons, and that is, this is really the, the first 
development process for a, a, a revision of the game where in every development meeting we have a copy of all of the previous players' handbooks. So in every meeting we have the first edition players' handbook, the second edition players' handbook, the third edition players' handbook, the fourth edition players' handbook. Sometimes we even bring the 3.0 players' handbook and the 3.5 players' handbook. The rules cyclopedia is often in our dev meetings. Um, we, are, we are constantly digging into the game's legacy in all of its forms, not giving pride of place uh, to any of the editions except for first, and that's mostly for story elements. Um, and yeah, because in many ways it's it's the lore that is is the bedrock of the game. The mechanics, if, especially if you do a deep dive into all of the previous editions, have gone through many mutations. Uh, but it's often it's that a lot of the story tropes, the archetypes behind the character classes, those are the things that sort of sing through all editions of the game. And now Trevor has to distill that into a tweet. Nope. <laughs> Do you want to like take that? Do you guys want to rotate questions since we all like maybe yeah. let Ronnie take the next one? Sure. sure. Okay. I hope your question is for me because if you're going to ask Mike about this dog, I don't know. Like, uh, <laughs> it's adorable. Okay. Um, so, a little bit more uh, into the details. Uh, the, the way a D&D game plays changes as the characters progress. You, know, you described it as being different tiers, and uh, you really brought them to the forefront in 4th edition to actually say to the dungeon master, you should think about this range and this range. I've heard levels 1 through 3 being described as the apprentice tier. Could you give a brief description of how you envision the tiers of play in the, the next edition of Dungeons and Dragons, and approximately what levels those should fall into? Yeah, for the most part, uh, we don't think it's going to be necessarily as hard-coded and built into uh, the game like it was before. But we do tend to think about it as sort of a design and adventure design philosophy. So like one through three, we really want that to be easing you into your character and leading you from uh, a very basic, easy-to-grasp character into what you would call like the I'm now a full-fledged adventurer. I've made my choice of what kind of fighter I am or what kind of wizard I am, etc. So the first like three levels or so are really meant to, they're meant to introduce you to your own character in a lot of ways. And that, that means you'll be you know, doing a lot of things that you typically expect on a low-level venturing. It might not necessarily be as crazy and hyper-heroic as uh, you might eventually get into, but that's mostly what we're aiming at there. And then I think we also look uh, up through about 11th level is sort of the next tier of play. Um, it's not... There's not a, a big, like, okay, this is what this tier is about, but we look at certain, like, monster abilities are really going to appear in this tier, or this kind of adventure appears in this tier, and a lot of that has to do with the capabilities of the player characters, and, like, what kind of spells you can cast, how powerful your class features are. And then there's sort of another band from, like, 12 to 17-ish, uh, where you're getting up to your like, level spells at the end of that, and your, you know, unique threat attacks, a fighter, all that is sort of in that area, and then there's like the, the very end of the game, it's 18, 19, 20. What we kind of expect is that for DMs who want to really change the tone of their campaign, they'll be able to by looking at the monsters and looking at their adventure design guidelines, but for the DM who wants just sort of a similar experience across all 20 levels, you'll be able to do that too. So, I mean, we, we talk a lot about flexibility and putting a lot of tools in the hands of DMs, I think that the tiering concept is something we will use on the design side and then leave up as a, like an optional tool for the DM to use, the DM who wants to 
to let that change be felt over the course of those, those tiers. And in, in, in this tier progression, one of the first transition points that's dramatic uh, that, that we have tried to uh, solidify in all of the classes, and, and this is work that's still ongoing, um, the transition point is fifth level, and that's, that's been a, an important transition point uh, going all the way back to first edition because that's the point when many of the classes basically come into their own. And one of the, the best examples of this is this is when wizards can cast fireball, you know, one of their most iconic spells. And, and so we, we've wanted to make sure that no matter what class you're playing, when you hit fifth, it's like, okay, I am now fully a member of this class. Uh, but that is definitely meant, as you've seen in the most recent packet, that we've we've done some retooling in what the levels before fifth mean. Um, so fir first level is quite a bit simpler than it has been in the last decade, um, and that and that's very intentional on our part. We want people to be able to, you know, to sort of get their feet wet at first, not only familiarize themselves with their class, but also familiarize themselves with their race, because many of the races have special abilities to learn at first level. We don't want to overwhelm the starting player with choices, but you'll see as you go up, up through the levels, there are more choices appearing, more powerful options, um, you know, br uh, branches you can take in particular classes. Oh, I'm now this kind of fighter, that sort of thing. I think there's also, um, we, we think about uh, the first couple levels going pretty fast, so that as you're easing into it, you also get to learn, oh, leveling up is cool and fun too. So, not, I mean, that's kind of a shift we, we've taken for this, uh, uh, this latest iteration is that we expect you to get up to level three if you're starting level one. Within, what would you guys say, like three to four sessions? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, my question is kind of, uh, it might be a little bit of a future projection style. Okay. I can certainly be uh, cryptic about it if you like. But I've been playing the game for many years since second edition. You guys had like a, a myriad of different settings from like Dark Sun, Alpha Deep, Ravenlock. Are you planning on developing uh, more worlds or settings? It seems like in fourth edition they got really pared down. There's like player realms book, GM realms book, realms done. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any specific plans of developing more settings or any of the old ones. Or the, the, there are hints at least philosophically to where our hearts are uh, in all of the playtest packets. Because starting the very first packet, and going through the, the current one, we have sprinkled references all over the place to Greyhawk, FR, Dragonlance, Dark Sun. Uh, I believe at one point we even had a reference to something in Mistara. Uh, we've had uh, in some of the packets there are references to Ravenloft. So we can't talk about products, but uh, as you know, we've said from the very beginning, this this D and D next is meant to embrace. D&D and all of its uh, wonderful variety, uh, and that, in, that includes D&D settings. Yeah, if you noticed in the last packet when we took the, the wizard and trans transformed it into the mage, but kept that wizardry class feature, that's basically us building the infrastructure to add in different types of spellcasters, like an artificer from Eberron, or the uh, Towers of High Sorcery from Dragonlance, things like that, where we're already trying to build those landing points for pieces from other worlds that might change how things will work. So we're thinking about all those ahead of time. Can I give them a spoiler for the next packet? Mm -hmm. Oh, Chris yeah. is nodding. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, for instance, the next packet, we are going to have the Kendra race up for playtest. 
classics.com we have a lot of that stuff coming back is, is evil it's pdfs and we know people like playing different settings and we know in building the game that people like to make their own settings so that's an important thing for us to support and building the system so that it can handle that it's not rigid it's not like hey if i'm not using if i don't want to use vancy and casting it's not like the game just blue screens right like it's no, you can yeah you can find other ways to do that yeah, or even psionics things like that it's not something we're working on right now but it's something we know at some point someone's going to want to add that so we want to Think ahead and build that infrastructure to last the long haul. Yeah. Thanks for the spoiler, too. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I know you can't really talk about uh, specifics for dates or release dates or anything like that, but I was wondering if you could give us an idea of the timeline going forward and when we might be expecting to see a new core product. So it's, we're looking at 2014. It's just a matter of when in 2014. That has the asterisk of like maybe the next, like the playtest payback might come in awful across something that hates the game. But based on what we're trying to you know, sometime in 2014, a lot of this is going to come down to like how quickly we can work on the math and things like that. Because there's still a lot of work to be done uh, in that beta testing sort of period. Can you describe the work that remains? So the, most of it comes down to the um, getting the rules details right, which Jeremy would be familiar with, uh, getting a lot of the interactions done right, and then just the kind of the work behind a lot of the math behind the game of saying, okay, patrol is this level, is that the appropriate challenge if it's fighting against a party, does it feel strong enough, are the monsters lasting long enough, is lightning bolt compared to cone of cold, compared to disintegrate, are those numbers correct, uh, save or die spells, making sure that those are working correctly, like how lethal we want them to be, things like that, you know, what, what does a ninth level spell really mean in terms of power, things like that. So a lot of it is just getting those, that power relationships, getting those correctly calibrated. And once we're done that, we're going to start jumping on and just filling in holes. We've yeah. got more spells to design, more magic items, more monsters. All of those have to be done. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and then there, you know, when when our focus shifts to creating product, then there's also a lot of just writing to yeah. do, story material to fill in, a lot of things that have been invisible to the playtest process, and things that are already underway. Um, but it's sort of all of that stuff is going on in the background, and then the closer we get to product creation, that becomes more and more of our focus. Yeah. Thanks. I've got one from uh, Newbie Dan. Um, how easily adaptable will older, older models be? Can you see a future where you'll provide conversions for older models? Yeah, that, that's one of the things, you know, as far as the product goes, I can't really say what we'd officially do, but yeah, one of the, one of the things that we really want to be able to do is if you have a classic model like Ravenloft, <laughs> 
um, you know, uh, or anything from third edition to fourth edition, that you feel it's, it's you can take that story, and maybe you're using a different stat block, but the, you can just take the dimension and run it as is. So that's one of the things we've been doing in our in my own play test, you know, just running things at the office or for a group. I just took Forge of Fury and ran it as is. And whenever there was a stat, you know, like, oh, there's three Trilites here, there's four orcs, or there's an, there's an ogre who's like a level three fighter or whatever that guy was. Like, just, just stack him up and next. As is, like, not trying to, like, balance the encounter and figure out the XP budget. Just repopulate those dungeons with the corresponding stats next and then run it. And that was one of the tests of making sure it felt right, that you could play through that as written and it, it felt right. And it was, you know, and it was fun and it worked, you know. So that's, that's definitely something that we intend. Yeah, we've, we've had a number of cases uh, in the office as well as in home games that people in the department are running where they've taken first or second edition modules in particular, and other than swapping out the monster stat blocks, they have run the modules as is. Yeah, uh, I mean, Greg, Greg Bilsman right now is running the entire drag, original Dragonlance saga for a group at home using D&D Next, yeah. and it's running more or less seamlessly for him. Yeah, I think it, it ventures from every edition. I know, like, uh, Dan Jellin, one of our archives, is running the Slaying Stone, a fourth edition adventure, same way, just converting things over, using the maps, running it with miniatures and stuff. So, and it's, it's been working out well for us. And that's, that's one of the bellwethers we've been using to make sure we're on the right track. I actually have a question for everybody else. Has anyone here watched any of the live stream games that we've done? Hey, oh, hey, hey, yeah. hey, hey. Uh, also, yeah, thank you, Trevor. You're now validated. So, you can this on the last one is I'm running Lich King's Beloved, which is a third edition adventure, a high level third edition adventure. And that's been, I mean, we've only had the one encounter so far that I threw together on the fly, but I think that's going to be a, a good test for us to see if we're succeeding at high levels, too. Because yeah. it's, uh, it's a pretty killer, killer adventure. It's a Chris Perkins adventure. Nine years ago. <laughs> I don't even remember who's in that adventure. It's like, well, the Lich told me. Yeah. That was for issue 100 of Dungeon. That's right. Wow. I'm old. <laughs> we can all interrupt you here. Okay. Um, early on in the process, we heard a lot of talk about the different rules, modules, and we've heard about them here. Can you tell us? what types of modules you're considering and what things we might expect in core worlds and what things might wind up in future projects. Yeah, that's, that's actually a really good question. So we, we don't yet have an outline, say, for a theoretical, like maybe the DMG might have those rules in it. The, uh, our philosophy, though, is whatever the DM's product ends up being, uh, it's probably going to look a little bit more like third edition's Unearthed Arcana, where it's aimed at advanced DMs, and it's like, hey, here's how to make your setting or your campaign world or your campaign come to life. Um, so some obvious ones are like, you know, rules for more, more tactical combat, where the rules are more like, hey, here's how to determine cover. And it's the, the players and the DM are leaning on the rules to give them clarification there, rather than a DM judgment call. So you can kind of have more of that combat as a puzzle feel. It's not like the DM going, oh, no, you don't have cover, or yes, you do have cover. Like, the rules can, can determine that. So that option there, more positional things being important, terrain being an important part of it, being able to, like, basically dress up your battles, make them into, you know, that sort of puzzle, tactical challenge mode. Um, there are some simple things we can do, like, something as simple as taking your game and saying, you're awarding XP for different reasons, can really change the feel. You might do episodic XP, like if you're more like, okay, I think of my campaign as a TV series. And so there's, once you resolve a plot line, everyone's just gonna level up. 
the, there's the old school kind of, hey, you only get XP for treasure. So actually, you don't want to fight monsters. You want to find ways around them to grab the treasure and get out. Or you, I just, I'm only going to award XP for monsters, you know, things like that for killing monsters. The, um, so dials like that, um, one of the big ones is healing, obviously. Like, you can really change the feel of the game by just saying, look, when you rest for the night, you get one hit point back. You know, and that really changes how your campaign feels. Versus, hey, you rest for the night, you get all your hit points back, right? Things like that. So trying to where we can, like, there's a reason why we call it a short rest and not a one-hour rest. Because it's very easy. You can say, well, you can just call it whatever the duration of it is, a one-hour rest, an eight-hour rest. We're trying to use terms we could say, look, you can say short rest, and you can change what that number actually means in your campaign, and you're not breaking anything. Because you can just say, hey, my campaign of short rest is five minutes, because I, it's, we're going to just, you know, you're, you're like superheroes, I want you guys to pop things quickly, every fight I want you to burn through as many things as possible. The long rest is an hour, so you're going to take quick rests and get all your spells back and go back to battling, right? And so you can use everything else in the core system, and you just see long rest and know what it means. So, because there's actually, and that's an area where you might argue, well, for the game, you should, if you just said one hour rest, it's clear. But we know to keep things extensible, right. trying to use terms up front where you can swap things in and out. The, um, and and one thing that is important to clarify, and this is something we talked about, it's like over a year ago at PAX East on a panel we were on like this. Um, it isn't necessarily that we're going to release a bunch of sort of literal modules, you know, either inside one big product or as separate products. We, we certainly uh, have explored and will explore that as an approach. It's, it's more important uh, to, to communicate that we have an approach of modularity. Yeah. So, so there is already modularity in the rules that we have provided to you, uh, even in the, the most recent packet, where we, we made feats entirely optional. That's a, actually an example of a modular piece of the game. You can have a, a group that simply turns off feats or turns them on, uh, since we, we're now experimenting with them being off by default, and then you decide if you're going to turn them on. That modularity you can even see in the classes themselves. Uh, we've, we have constructed, uh, say, the new fighter, so that each of the martial path options in the fighter is essentially a module. Uh, each one not only represents a different story trope, but it also represents a different play style and a different level of complexity. So if you look at the path of the warrior and compare it to the path of the gladiator, you're going to see in one, with the path of the warrior, a very old-school fighter. This is a guy who... Uh, guy or gal who swings a weapon hard and does so over and over again, and, and that's and also and also a good option for NPCs. If you're yeah, that's one of the things we're doing too is making these paths the really simple ones. And some of the spells we're working on to say I can put a fifth level NPC wizard as an enemy, and there's like a nice tight list of spells and, and a build like a pick that going to make it so I can have a very compact stat block in my adventure. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, no, no, that's great. And, and but then again, in contrast, a person could pick this other sort of module inside the fighter that is the path of the gladiator, where you suddenly have quite intricate tactical options that are reminiscent of options that we had in the Book of Nine Swords, that we had in 4th edition. And so in a way you get to, even as a player, in the choices you're making, opt into the level of complexity you want, opt into a certain kind of play experience, and opt into the, a certain uh, set of story choices. The um, one other thing, as far as like genre tropes, for, um, for like rules options and stuff, we could do worse than take, say, our five most popular settings beyond the realms and make sure we have mechanics that can support the flavor for each. Yeah. 
so you know, if you say, hey, if you were going to play a Ravenloft campaign, what would you need? So like fear and gothic horror and you know, things like that. And make sure we have rules. Yeah, corruption. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Rules you can slot right in. Dragon yeah. arms. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Defiling and preserving. I mean, all of, all of these things are on the table for yeah. us. Thank you. Um, and Rodney, about empty steps. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be strong. The bad part is to stand my boss. She's like, you know, yeah, I'm in there. <laughs> I love you, man. Love you too. Man. In your in your Monday articles, you talked about uh, I think two two concepts that we thought were interesting but never appeared in the playtest: the legendary template for creatures, and then a new base class that's basically a fighter wizard. Did either of those survive uh, the testing internal process? Do you want to talk about the, the fighter wizard or the... Uh, yeah, I mean, am I allowed to talk? Oh, yeah, good. Okay, yeah. well, you've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> so we brought you up here for your fantastic smile. <laughs> okay, so uh, we did at one point test a whole new base class uh, that was, uh, we called it the Eldritch Knight and stuff like that. And, um, which are which are alpha testers saw as well. Yeah, the, the alpha testers did see that. So if there's any of those guys in the room, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, during testing, it ended up just sort of not panning out for a variety of reasons that are too lengthy to go to here. But uh, that doesn't mean that the idea isn't uh, good, and we won't want to salvage it. Um, we are working on some stuff with multi-classing, for example, that you will probably see in the next packet. Jeremy's yeah, nodding, so that seems like a good sign. Yeah, I haven't um, killed it yet. Right. So, uh, it, will taste it's on, it is indestructible in that. <laughs> so, so. so we're working on some, uh, some ways to resurrect the concepts from that class uh, multi-classing system. Uh, because the, we're, we're really trying to focus on like, the big architecture for the main classes. So uh, that, that's, uh, that class was a step in an evolution of mechanics that is not yet done. Oh, so legendary creatures. Uh, yeah, we're just in the process of designing those. So I don't know if those will be in the next packet, but for us, really, it's just about getting like the more the math right and that kind of interface right. So yeah, so you can expect what we're doing right now is going through our big list of creatures, and the ones that are very notable and powerful and interesting or planar in some way are getting flagged as legendary. So. Chris, can you think of any examples of creatures we're going to make legendary? Well, we've got the dra we've got dragons. Yeah. Um, High-level dragons can be legendary creatures. Um, and what that actually means is if you are a legendary creature, you have an effect on your lair and your surroundings. And, for instance, the green dragon's lair. The green dragon, it might not be baked into the dragon's stat block, but it has the ability to make poisonous clouds come up out of the earth, and it can twist the... Uh, the foliage and the trees around its lair and kind of warp the forest around it so that when you enter the domain of a, a green dragon, you know you're in a weird place belonging to a very weird and powerful creature. Other monsters that we've identified as being potentially legendary are the Beholder, uh, uh, let me think, um, Titans. Vampire Lords. Vampire Lords is a really good one. <laughs> so that when we come, when it comes time to run your Strahd adventure, you can know how to take a vampire lord and have it really sort of affect its surroundings. Yeah, the haunted castle. Kind of exactly, goes. and also the monsters can be. You can basically amp up their powerfulness. Yeah. So that you can run a Strahd-like figure and not have them just get killed in the first room. Um, legendary is. It could be different things for different monsters too. So not every legendary creature behaves exactly the same way. When we design a legendary creature, we're kind of 
designing something unique and giving it legendary properties that are its own. Yeah. It's also a dial, so we might say that frost giants are legendary because you have know, the ancient bloodline, uh, the, the, the giant god and stuff, but it's not like an individual frost giant has the same effects. He might just be, when you meet a giant, there's something really imposing and innately about its size. It's not just that it's a 15 foot tall guy, it's, there's something you know, more to it. But it might be like when you get enough frost giants together, when they go raiding down into the civilized lands, there's always a blizzard that accompanies them because there's just enough of them there and their ancient bloodline, that ancient magic that's within them that gets awakened you know, when they go to war and things like that. That, you know, fire giants, when they, if they inhabit a mountain, they awaken the volcano that's dormant in the mountain, and that's what their, their, their lure becomes. And when you go into a mind flayer stronghold and you're surrounded by them, there's all this sort of psychic energy that kind of suffuses the area, kind of disrupts your sleep, makes it impossible to take rests, that kind of thing yeah. you can really play with. You also mentioned, like, uh, I think altars or maybe, like, the hand and eye Exactly. Yeah. So you could imagine the um, yeah. So if you're if you're fighting clerics of Bane, you're in their their temple. Bane has put power in that that altar. The high priest can draw upon you know the same kind of thing. So a little bit different expression, but the same basic idea of these world altering magics. Yeah, I'm actually testing something like that in our Tuvia uh, game where there's the, there's a bad guy with an artifact, a sword. And it was the artifact that was what was making him legendary. They took the artifact from him, so now that he is no longer legendary in that sense. And now one of the PCs is going to start unlocking the same kind of powers that he had and becoming legendary effectively. Now that's just something I'm doing on my own. That's not yeah. necessarily what's going to go in the game, but I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> the best part was we stole his sword and then set him adrift on a barge going down a raging river. Yeah. And of course he'll never show up again. We're all 100% confident. We have a ferry and he was like halfway across the river on the ferry and they cut the ropes and they're just like, bye. <laughs> The thing I love about the lair concept is how much it enhances world immersion. Because uh, one of one of the things that we are uh, trying to hit with this this lair approach is bring into the game these tropes you see in fantasy stories over and over again of like the dragon wanting to fight you in its lair and whatnot, and, and actually giving that an expression in the game uh, rather than. You know, typically monsters have sort of been these like platonic ideals, and no matter where you meet them, they're always the same. Yeah. We're, we're kind of enchanted by this idea of, as in most stories, like the vampire wants to be on its home turf when it yeah. fights you. you know? Or that all demons are legendary in the abyss. Things right. like that. That the paladin in hell, he was actually much badder ass than you thought he was. Like, you know, if, the pet, if you go to hell to fight devils, that's, that's their home turf. Like, it's a bad place to be. Things like that. And, and then it gives motivation to in adventures for the heroes to try to come up with clever ways to catch the villain outside its lair. Um, and then it means they know if they're going into the lair, they need to be extra prepared because the, the legendary foe is going to be far more powerful than if they fought it just you know, out on a road or you know, some yeah. randomly in the forest somewhere. Yeah, I had a question about mass combat, uh, castle construction, kingdom building, things like that. These were largely absent from 4th edition. And I wonder if those things are currently under development index, and uh, if they are, or if they're just under discussion. What level of priority are you placing on them? Are you like, this has to be in the game, or is it just more of a, if we get to it, great, if not? Do you want to handle that, Rodney? Yeah. Okay. 
So um, it's definitely something we're thinking about, and we're hoping to hang a lot of that kind of stuff on what we're calling our downtime mechanics. Uh, one of the things that we've really talked about a lot, especially over the last few months, is the idea that we want this to be a game that's not just good for adventures, but good for campaigns, right? And uh, like good stories and good long campaigns often have long lulls where the players are doing the exact kind of thing you're talking about, building up castles, raising an army, founding a temple, etc. So we want to have a, a basic mechanical system that you can hang that on, and if you want to use that in your campaign, you can, and that sort of forms like the bedrock of, of, uh, of all these subsystems, like running an organization, owning a castle, etc. And then what we can do is let DMs and players decide if they want to go use other sort of optional systems that plug into that, right? So, for example, not everybody wants to do with army management in their game, right? So rather than making army management into the basic downtime rules, it's more like there is a, a plug-in that you can take and plug that in. So we're, we're thinking along those lines. We're not super far along in, in the development of that, but it's definitely something to think about because we want you to feel like if if campaigns are your preferred play style, we give you all the tools to do an awesome campaign where people are affecting the world and building up the castle and becoming the you know one of the mask lords of Waterdeep or whatever. And that's all in a all flows into our, our downtime system. Yeah. Part one of the assumptions of our of the story of the worlds that we think about when we're designing the game is that characters will become very powerful and they will become very influential and. It's been my experience in all of my campaigns that the characters do want to be more part of that world. They want to have their strongholds. They want to be uh, movers and shakers. And we have been negligent in the past about not basically providing the means by which to do it. And so we're mindful of that. It goes back to making sure the game is very open-ended, that you can take your campaign whichever way you want to go. And, and that's it's also very true to the old school. I mean, yeah. you got your keep, you got your followers, you got your temple. We're just trying to preserve something that's been in the game for its history. Because yeah. in 4th edition, whenever I started playing 4th edition, I was like, where are the castles? Yes. And eventually in the Morning Canaan's Emporium book, you could just buy a flat castle, but there wasn't really any other supporting information. So it was... They were pretty fat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, did, we did release a customization article in Dragon, actually, yeah. before. Yeah. So you, you could uh, kit bash together a stronghold. Um, I was originally going to ask if the final product was going to be named DMD Next, but actually, it was just answered on Twitter. So um, I have another question, though. Um, I know in, in 3.5, there was a lot of focus on, um, since it was released in OJL, under. Uh, um, about giving other people the opportunity to make modules, and since obviously modularity is still a major part of GMT, um, is there any thought to releasing it under OGL or to, to making some sort of allowance for other people to uh, sort of bring modules into the game? Yeah, so what we're looking at now is we don't have anything to announce formally, but we know that creating material and sharing it is a big part of D&D, and so we are definitely looking at a way to let that happen. So I can't give details on exactly what we'll do, but that is definitely something we know is important to D&D. <laughs> I was going to ask about your dog, but... Oh, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> We've got two, so you're not real specific. <laughs> I, I hope this isn't a controversial question, but uh, where might the bard be at this point in time? <laughs> the bard is, uh, he's like just off stage, putting his makeup. Uh, yeah, he's going to be the next playtest back. Yeah, you're going to see the bard in a few weeks. Yeah. Turning up his loop. My question is I was wondering about the changes along the way that have been made. You were 
glad to see it, or something that might have just clicked and felt right. It's like, you know, something off before, and then you tried something new, pay adjusters too bad, and said, yes, this is exactly what we're looking for. Yeah, the entire ongoing thing with the, getting the complexity curve, you know, the fighter, of starting on a very simple fighter, and then going to a more complicated fighter, and then kind of wavering a little bit, and then coming at, at it from like the subclass approach. Yeah. You know, where each class, the third level, you get to pick what kind of fighter, what kind of druid are you? And that was like, that's when we did that, it felt just right. It, it just, it's almost like, has this always the way it's been? Like, it was one of those nice things, like when, I feel like we're on the right track when I feel that way when I'm running the game or playing it. It's almost like, now that I've experienced it this way, it just feels like that's how it always worked, right? And you have to kind of, not necessarily, but it just feels spiritually it's on the path. So I would say myself, that sort of like third level choice point, do you guys have ones? Well, there's actually a real uh, a crunchy example. Uh, when we first introduced the advantage and disadvantage mechanic, we, we were completely jazzed about it. We'd already been play testing it. But we released it in the public playtest ready to shoot our own baby because we knew this is new. Not literally shoot our own baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we knew this is new. Uh, it might not click for the community. And we were actually surprised at how much people were like, yes, yes, this, this, keep yeah. it. And so that's, and that's why it's now embedded in the system. Yeah. you got to understand how reticent we are about adding anything new to the game. I mean, if it hasn't existed in any previous edition, it gets the hairiest eyeball of all. We are, we are our own toughest critics on any mechanical element that has never existed before. So, yeah. How about you, Rodney? It's tough to say anything other than some classes, honestly. Yeah. Because it was, it was something that really evolved over the course of, we actually had a pretty early version of them in the very, with the first packet or the second packet, where we had like the fighting styles and the rogue uh, schemes and everything. So we had a version of it throughout the whole the whole development process, but then when we finally uh, clicked it in for like every class, having this choice point, and really understanding how to like, design them and format them and stuff like that, really took the game from, like, we, we had this vague idea about character customization, and sort of clicked in, and we were all excited with it, and we sent it to our alpha playtesters, and they were all excited about it, and now it's gotten out of the wider world, it seems like everybody else is really excited about it, so it was one of those things that is... It is not the way it's been done before, but it's reminiscent of things that have been done before. So I wouldn't call it a new surprise, but more like, hey, we kind of figured out how to do this thing in the right way. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's so a great job. I really like it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. A lot. Thank you. I'm really excited about it. Now um, my question is, I am an old school game, I'm probably playing in the game a lot, and I wasn't born yet, but... Big So when I looked for Warrior, which of course, Myself. I've been very happy to see that order there. I didn't notice that you know, there's a survival power in there, and then there's a second lane back there in the main fire. And I was just, those are the things that the old school guys don't like that style of healing as well. You know, so it seemed like I wish there's been in the way. So, yeah, I mean, how's your modularity? How do you want to help out with that kind of healing approach so that you can have it either way? Yeah, so th th that's a good example to start with of, you know, in our next survey. We'll look at how do people feel that, about that feature overall. You know, are people generally happy with it or not happy with it? And I, I think, and let, let's say people like it, so we're going to keep it. You know, just assume if, if that happened, then that really comes to when we look at healing and what that really means. You know, where, okay, so you have that ability and it lets you, you know, once per long rest get back a bunch of hit points. And that's where we can do things like, well, you can change what a long rest is. You can change uh, how quickly natural healing happens. So it, it really becomes like in the old school game. It, it's like 
Conan drawing on those reserves, like he can only do this like once per week or something like that, right? Where it's like it's really exceptional he's able to do that, you know. You know, those two powers aren't really rest related. I mean, I get your rest thing. Oh, great thing. yeah. That, that's what he, he means the one that you can, as an action, just yeah. bam. No, but, yeah, but to, just the sense that when you think of the fighter from in fiction, you know, when you go back to like, you know, the pulp source, you know, Conan and all this stuff, you know, where he gets crucified in one of the, but, he, but he's able to survive it. So while, yeah, it's like a bunch of healing all at once, that's something where I feel comfortable saying in some ways, like, I think how often you do it is going to map better to that kind of play, just because it is reflecting, I think something for the fighter is something that, like, the, char the characters that that class draws on do have that sort of capability, but maybe not every day, you know, or every fight. It might be, Conan does that, like, once or twice in his career. So I think a lot of that, if it is in the game, would be, I think, to get a real different feels how often you're doing that and things like that. The, because um, that is one of the tricky things, right? Because we know there's always going to be something where we can't make it so it should just be anything. You know, we're kind of settling on some areas where, like, well, we can just feel like the, 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 this is actually something Jeremy Good talks about a lot, like, when we're designing, that we feel comfortable because the literary archetype that that's drawing from, right. it does kind of feature that sort of thing. The, um, and so the, uh, so I think that's where that, that kind of comes down to, is just we would feel comfortable if enough people liked it, even though, let's say, you know, not everyone likes it, but we feel it, it, it's close enough to what you think of as the hero, the fighter from myth or legend, you know, being able to sustain that massive injury without actually dropping or you know, getting crucified by Conan or whatever it is. And then giving people, okay, if you don't, you know, it likes the frequency of it, like how that gets applied in the game and giving a DM those kind of options. So like, so for instance, if you wanted to run like the very gritty campaign, healing is very hard to come by, we'd want to make sure that that kind of ability, we talk about it. You know, we're taking a holistic approach. Any mechanic that shows up in any character class, we can refer to and give the DM some guidance on what it might actually mean. So, the, um, and, and for some abilities, and Second Wind is actually a great example of this, right now, because you're seeing a playtest version of the classes rather than the fully written version, you're not you're not having the benefit of sort of surrounding text giving story context for what's yeah. going on. Because um, as Mike said, the intent of Second Wind is isn't that necessarily the fighter is almost you know quasi magically getting a bunch of hit points back. It's again as Conan and many other uh, uh, warriors. All the Conan myths. And sort of sorcery, they just sometimes are able to absorb an amount of damage, you know, through just strength of will, crazy adrenaline bursts that would knock down. Uh, another person. Because one of the things we want to be able to do with a fighter is give the fighter an identity next to like the ranger or the paladin or the barbarian that is distinct. So, but it's one of the nice things about our subclass approaches. Since we do know there's like a limited footprint of those things that like every fighter gets, we can address them. We talk about different genres or different ways you want to you want to run your campaign. We can be very direct in saying here's how this this specific ability can change. We know we're talking about every fighter. It just seems as controversial as healing seems to be on the board. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be something that you put in a subclass or a few subclass, not everywhere, so that at least some people could avoid it. Yeah. No, and it is, it's interesting to point out, like, when you think of, that's the only core class feature we have in all our classes that I think is touching on that, like, essentially, you know, a normal guy healing without magic. And that was actually by, by design, to really give the sense that the fighter is different from other characters, you know, in the sense. And the rogue kind of falls into that category, too, with the, um, like, the, the thief having the extra action, special well, attack. Even, even the, the base class rogue uh, ability, um, Invasion. Invasion. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, class future things change all the time. Yeah. Invasion. Yeah, so there's always that tension, especially with those two classes of 
removing magic completely from the equation, but how do we still catch that literary sense of what makes a fighter a fighter, like when you're reading a story or, you know, or, you know, or, or kind of drawing from the source material that Dee sprang from? And the, the whole question of healing, how much is too much, how much is too little, how much is just right, uh, this has actually been one of the uh, most contentious things throughout the playtest. And what's fascinating to us, not only from reading the boards, but also simply uh, looking at the massive amount of data that we get through our surveying process, is the, the community is really split. Um, and so this, this has been a place where we, we've... You know, that's why we keep trying, you know, slight adjustments to say, you know, it's almost like an optometrist, you know, now is this right? Now is this right? You know, keep turning the lens slightly to see when it comes into focus. But ultimately what we've discovered is there actually is not one right answer uh, because people t want to tell different types of stories. For sure, for sure. I can see the boards. You want to cover both sides of the fence. But yeah. a good example of Lucky Feet, I'm not a big fan of the Lucky Feet, but it doesn't bother me because a feet is easy to get there. Yeah. But if I was as DM, I'd say, okay, there's no second win. My fire players want to say, well, I just, they balanced it with me having a second win. Yeah. Like, well, what do I do? So, you know, you know you got to give me something. Yeah. I'm like, well, what do I give you know? No, and, and, and that's the kind of case where we might have in our sort of genre module say, replace this ability with this other ability. Or when you use it, it works this way. You instead. But you touched, on something that's, you touched on something that's very, very important in D&D, &D, and that is the DMs and the players decide what game they want to play. Right. And they jettison and keep whatever they want. Yeah. Nothing that we do is imposing. It's meant to be just, here's, a, here's something you can use. Yeah. The, the, in, in addition to healing being this place where, again, we've just embraced the fact that different groups want different things, and we'll, we, we will certainly come down on one side or another at least slightly because we have to make a choice, and, and we are guided by the game's legacy, what most playtesters are telling us, what you know is most resonant with mythology and, and the sword and sorcery stories that inspired D&D. But again, no matter what side we come down on, we want to make sure that people who want to tell different types of stories can tell them. But even the fighter itself has been uh, a very a similar puzzle um, because it's interesting. There are some people who want the fighter to basically have nothing. Um, and then others who you know, feel very strongly the fighter should be able to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with a high-level wizard and feel just as effective. Um, and you can't have a fighter have nothing and stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with a wizard. And so, again, it's, we, we've been throughout the playtest uh, exploring ways to deliver uh, the various fighters that people want. Because it turn, basically it turns out there is not one fighter, there are fighters. Cool. Next question. Okay, uh, I know that right now you're doing most of like all the mechanical stuff, I think, but kind of looking to the future, uh, with 4th edition, one of the things I, I really kind of liked was this online tool that you had. I was wondering if you were looking towards any kind of digital, like maybe apps or anything like that, yeah. you might be doing in the future. Awesome. <laughs> are people getting out of line? So I, I can't give you details, I can give you specifics, but we know that a lot of people have these for their Android equivalent. Uh, or they have tablets uh, of various stripes, and we know that's the contemporary sort of tool people are using. And we, yeah, so it's important. We are definitely looking at our options, and we know DD, we want to keep it uh, contemporary, so it's an important part of what we're looking at. So, I wanted to ask about supplements, which I'll presume they be spending all my money on pretty soon. <laughs> so, uh, in, in fourth edition, they were all uh, big books. You take a huge chunk and you go really in depth on it. And 
basically give us a weapon to hit people with. It's so big. Um, so I was wondering about with this next edition, were you thinking about uh, changing it up? Because I know there are rule mods that you wanted to release. So is that going to be like a smaller book that we can get, or is it going to be changed so yeah. up? Yeah. So I, I can't go into too much detail about specifics of what the product might look like. But philosophically, what we want to be able to do is build things that are more resonant and then more like lodged more in the story of like what kind of campaign you might be running or what kind of story you might want to tell with D&D or how you might want to run your game. Making material that's more interconnected and that has depth to it that comes from the conjunction of that material. So I'll use an example like a Complete Warrior or Martial Power, which was just here's more stuff for a character class, largely independent of like any storytelling. Right, it's just, I mean, there's some story there, like a prestige class or Paragon Path, but it's generally light, it's there really to serve the mechanics. Where I want us to go is to think more in terms of, hey, wouldn't it be cool to run a campaign where X, Y, or Z? Where you might say, wouldn't it be cool if I could run a DD campaign that is based on, well, I'll just, you know, like, uh, I always go to Pirates, and I always get irritated because I want to have a better example than Pirates, but Pirates. You right? just love Pirates. Yeah, right. Actually, I'm not a big pirate yet, whatever. The Pittsburgh uh, Pirates. Haunted by Pirates. Yeah, haunted by Pirates. Well, it is true I'm haunted by Pirates. That's, they did not tell us about that when we bought the house. But we, uh, so, but you could say, look, it's not just, this is one of the great things with the subclass approach, is it's not just, here's a bunch of new fighter builds. We could say, look, here is the buccaneer option for a fighter. Here is the uh, pirate option for a rogue. Here is the wizard school of magic that is, deals with like winds and storm and water. Here is the, if this is in the realms, well, here's the Cleric of Umberly that you can play, things like that. Here's a set of monsters that are tied to the oceans. And what do you know, we have, under the ranger, we have, one of the options is basically the sea ranger, the guy who hunts to again and the evil shark, you know, sharks and things like that. Um, and then you can put your, your, your detailed ship combat rules in there and things like that. So you look at it, you're not just getting all these scattered pieces, you're getting the, the, the framework of a campaign. We think, oh, I can I can see myself just taking my core rule books and taking this one book and running an entire campaign with it, and then maybe there's another book that comes up later, which is like Ice Age D and D or something like that, where it's like, oh, here's like the more here's wooden weapons, and hey, there's no metal, right? What's that mean for the equipment list? And you know, the shaman option and the druid or something like that, you know, where well, there are no clerics, the gods haven't been discovered yet, and what does that mean, right? Is there a mechanic behind that or the story? To really tie into an evocative sense of a campaign, what the game you're going to run, you know, what does it all mean? Rather than just like, well, here's new ways to hit things hard, and here's new ways to blow them up with spells. The uh, and, and that's a cool because people like optimizing. That's fun for a lot of people, and you know, it's one of the puzzles of a DD. But I think we look too much to that in terms of like, you know, what we're adding to the game, and not enough at that holistic whole of DD of what it means to run a new campaign. So that would be one of my goals. Whenever we do like a big product, it makes you think of, oh, it's a new campaign I want to run. Not just more options to add to the list. You know, things that are evocative, that, that evoke this sense of story in place. Uh, I know it's a little bit early to be talking about sort of the lore that you want to build around the, the character classes. Uh, but I was wondering if um, my favorite concept that you introduced in the previous edition, the making combat, the, the primal spirits as sort of a a non-divine, natural element of the game. Do you want to talk a little bit about how it relates to the Druid? Uh, yeah, already in the Druid, we have a few vague references to primal magic, uh, and I think even a reference or two to spirits. Um, so 
they, they certainly aren't going away entirely. Uh, their relationship uh, to the rest of the cosmology is still being determined. But, but there, there is certainly a place for them. Yeah, we, we can be, I mean, yeah. so what we've talked about is that basically druidic summoning. I always like to tell the story of going through this trap-filled dungeon, the druid using uh, summon nature's ally to bring our trap springers into existence. Say, hey, welcome little celestial badger. Right. Why don't you walk down this hallway? Let's see what happens, right? And playing in that game, like, this is kind of sketchy, but I guess it's what you do. And instead thinking more, making the different classes, like through their summoning lists, or how they summon, you know, that being, oh, druids summon spirits. You're not summoning a badger, you're summoning the spirit of the badger. And it takes a ferocious form. And what does that mean to the cosmology and our storytelling? Right. But in terms of the characters looking at, looking at, like, you know, Summoning and those kind of bigger picture abilities in a more holistic way, so. and, and yeah, and to to expand on that a bit, the, where we're going with things like primal spirits is we are recasting them in a way that will work in a number of our settings. Yeah, because uh, we know a lot of people liked what we did with them in fourth, um, but and, you know now I'm criticizing something that you know something we worked on. Uh, it was very cool, but one issue with it is, in some cases, it was so intertwined with essentially a pantheon of primal spirits that, in some cases, it was hard to integrate that with some of our established settings. Yeah, what were druids would be technically deities and things like that. Yeah, you know, so, so, you know, you know Dragonlance doesn't have the world serpent, you know, this kind yeah. of thing. Um, and so we're, we're going to take some of those concepts and make them a little more mutable so that they can live in the core of the game um, and not be uh, exclusive to uh, the world of the Nentir Vale. Yeah. Hi. Um, uh, my players have constantly complained about this, uh, but you had mentioned uh, 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 the options for complexities of different classes and whatnot. And one thing I was curious about is uh, many of my players like to play martial characters, as you think about They love the competition. And will there be Yeah, so, so the question would be, guys, here was like, will we have options for more martial guys to have more like magical style abilities? And do you want to? You know, well, yeah. Uh, have you had a chance to take a look at the gladiator and the knight? No, oh, okay. Yeah, but they aren't really magical. They're more in the well, options. No, but he, 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 he was. Yeah, he wasn't saying magic. He meant 4E style martial powers where they're non-magical, but they have effects that yeah. are akin to spells. So take, take a look at the Gladiator and the Knight, because they have the kinds of tactical options uh, that your players would be familiar with from yeah. forth. You'll also see when we release the Bard, uh, in the Bard there is a, one of the college choices, is the College of Valor, and there are some options there that are very reminiscent of uh, the 4 Warlord. Thank you. Um, I was just curious to know, uh, I know you mentioned about like you know, spell, like you're, you know, you're still adding spells and weapons and stuff. But in terms of like actual races and classes, like how much are you putting into creating new things uh, to bring to D&D versus you know rehashing like, uh, the fight and stuff like that? Most of it in terms of classes, we're not really we're gonna have a smaller class list, and generally the growth will take place in, in subclasses. And the advantage that actually has for us is we can be a little more daring. Like when you go back, if once we have, one of the things we're really committed to is once we have something invented, we don't want to reinvent it three or four times. If we have an archery option, 
that's our archery option. We don't need to make four more different varieties of archery. Instead, what we can do is the thing that's a little more interesting. Like, you know, if there is, well, I'll just use kind of, you know, my misinterpretation of the last question. If you wanted to have like an order of fighters who use magic in some way, we can make that a subclass, right? Like some specific new magic system. Um, that's where we can insert that. So in a way, we're getting the foundation done, the things you've seen before. Um, but we don't want to just keep repeating that stuff. This gives us a little more flexibility to be a little more daring because we know that DMs can pick and choose what options they want to use. That you can kind of decide, hey, here's what my campaign world is like. So it, Yeah, it, it, we're in this kind of uh, fascinating and really exciting middle ground where we're not expecting to uh, introduce you know, class after class after class after class, but because of the subclass structure, uh, we, we have this sort of restriction at the top paired with the, the potential for infinite expansion. Uh, yeah. And so it means, it means that uh, even in the core classes, you will see some really new content uh, that will be, you'll be seeing it for the first time in D&D Next. I mean, in some cases, it will be kind of a mashup of some old concepts into a new concept, and in other cases, an entirely new thing. Um, but yeah, we have amazing flexibility uh, in this, and one of the advantages of taking this approach of you know rather than rather than adding ten new classes and just sticking with a core set and adding to those classes, is it means that we can focus anytime we're bringing a new class-like option to the table. We can focus on what's really sexy and exciting about the new concept rather than doing all the infrastructural work over and over again that we have to do for a class. Uh, it means we can say, hey, we already have a fighter that works, but we want to twist on the fighter. Rather than having an entirely new fighter-like class that we introduce in some later supplement, we can you know, give you this cool add-on for the fighter and you're good to go. Yeah. What that also means for you as players is if you already know how to play the fighter, you already know how to play the mage, uh, it's also easier to dive into that new class option. Uh, rather than again having to learn an entirely new class. I primarily want to have a DM, so one of the things I kept looking for in the packets that I haven't seen yet is, uh, especially in third and fourth, uh, and even in second, the Lich especially, you could really customize those monsters. You had the templating system in third, and you had, I, I think, a kind of template thing in fourth as well. Um, for like liches, vampires, werewolves, death knights, the various half creatures. Is there any kind of rule set that you guys are going to be providing to us? Can you tell us anything about that for those creatures? Yeah, so from the, um, the, the monster creation side, we want to give you a uh, the quick system for making monsters. So like something where here, here's just some baseline numbers you can just pull off and throw some special some abilities on and you're good to go. We want to have a more detailed system if you want to make, like, you know, I'm making a monster for my campaign. So monster creation kind of has a range of, of the ways you might use it. And then within monster options, um, we haven't specifically talked about templates per se, like taking the existing feature and changing it. The, um, I think a lot of us just haven't gotten to that yet. But we've talked a lot about things like dragons and vampires where we might have a base stat block and then we have options you can add to it. So you know when you're fighting, when you're dealing with a vampire or a demon or a dragon, the player can never really count on exactly what it can do especially those legendary creatures, and especially creatures that have a little bit more variety to them, letting you easily alter those, like demons being a great example, right? You know, the Biss is of the super chaotic realm, demons are chaotic and random, except they all have these very regimented, like, ranks and orders and stuff. It's just, 
So a thing where it's like, okay, you have a rock, and you kind of know rocks all can do this dance ruin type thing, but you're not really sure what else might be happening beyond that. The um, and have we, we haven't really talked specifically about templates yet, but uh, you, I know you were working on monsters. Before. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like them. Um, yeah, and I really like monster games from fourth edition too. Like just to pull out a power and drop it into. So um, I think that's going to end up being more on the. Uh, when we get into like the final content design, where right? we start yeah. looking at ways to put that stuff in there, it's not really a top level system issue right now, so we haven't been tackling it so far. But um, you can actually provide a little Chris because he's more on the monster. Yeah, once we have basically the, we know how much a monster can be costed in terms of its experience point value, and we kind of get a gauge on how powerful certain monster abilities are. We can then come up with things like templates or themes or whatever they're called, superimpose those on monsters as the DMC spit. It would probably be something we'd put in the DM guide actually about how to customize, create your own monsters and customize existing monsters. There are different levels of customization that we're considering. Um, things like everything from the default orc in the monster manual has a great axe, but if you want orcs that wield long spears, giving the DM the means to basically just swap out the weapon. Yeah. That's something you can do very easily in the system right now. It doesn't really affect the monster's XP in any way. It's just very elegant. But then when we start talking about, well, let's turn this into a fiendish orc who was born on the first layer of the abyss, and so he's got all these demonic qualities to him. He's like a Tanaruk or something from the Forgotten Realms. How then does the DM uh, modify that orc accordingly? That's the kind of thing we haven't really gotten into yet because we're still designing a lot of our core monsters, but it is something we are talking about and kind of include. And, and in the last several packets, we have included in the bestiary customization options for some of the monsters, just as examples of the kind of swap-outs that will be available in the future. One of the things I think we learned from 4th edition was that we don't need to provide the DM with unique stat blocks for 15 different kinds of orcs. If we come up with a really elegant system for customization, we don't need to have the orc ravager and the orc rampager and the murder face orc, yeah. as Jeremy likes to call us. <laughs> um, you know, I, I love it. I love. I love prepending murder face to, to the name of any monster. <laughs> because we looked at those and we said that's that's all well and good, but where where are all these orcs in the world? Yeah. I mean, how do they fit into your campaign? Why did the murder for, why did the murder face 30th level orc just show up all of a sudden in your world at 30th level? Where was he the past 29 levels? Um, he was on vacation. He was on vacation with his murder face girlfriend. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, so. All right. to us just very briefly what you would prefer to see uh, rather than I, the, the return of these traditional spells. I prefer fourth edition. So oh, okay. Power spells. Mm -hmm. uh, you, know, uh, you had seven spells kind of 
it, they, yeah, they went up a level, but they were limited in their scope and ability. We, uh, even on 30th level, Wizard didn't have a way to shoot. Yeah. So one of the things, this kind of goes back to what I talked about a little bit earlier, like having that very core list of the very direct spells, like Magic Missile, Fireball, and stuff like that. That's the kind of thing where we might not have explicit support for like, hey, if you want to get, I mean, one of the big things is a DM, you can always determine what spells are available in your campaign. But we know like that sort of core list of spells, we want those to be the simple direct spells that they're just, it's very easy to understand, you can hold them all in your head, and Wish probably is not on that list, because it's not a spell you can just keep in your head. Where something like Meteor Swarm, at that you know, high level spell, is something really direct. Some may be something more like when you're looking at how we're presenting the spells. You might say, okay, in my campaign, I want to limit the, the, the spell list to the, the basic set spells, because those are the ones that are they're pretty direct. As a DM, I'm not worrying about these game breakers coming in and these things that are really like doing crazy things. I want to keep it more focused on, especially like, you know, a tactical combat, you know, that's kind of where, where I like to see wizards being more directly comparable to fighters. So you might as a DM say, that's really what I want to keep a focus on. Because we know in the basic game, we don't want like, hey, you're beginning, beginning DM and you've managed to get your campaign up to high levels, now deal with like Wish, now deal with these like Teleport and Scry and things like that. We want to keep it pretty direct, for, especially for, for beginning DMs, but that does have utility for other types of campaigns, where you want to keep the magic on a, on, a, on a shorter leash, you know. Well, yeah, there's one that takes a, like, about fourth, is it loud, it's problematic, and it's got rituals. And the interesting was the thing is, you know, my fighter could not cast a ritual spell, right? So, I mean, yeah, I had to go with materials or fight the DM, you know, if I wanted to have him do other things. But, you know, those things were still available kind of off to the side, but they weren't directly affecting the, you know, the combat play yeah. uh, where, where, you know, you're, you get your big dude in there and he just gets blown up because, you know, you know big spells come flying in. Yeah. They, you know, they blow all their dailies and, you know, you know they get, he's, he, Wizards got, what, uh, 20, it's not 20 spells now, but is it 20th level, like 444? Four, I think two, it's, two, one, 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 is it like 22 level 14? Say what? I think maybe, 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 it's not quite 20, I can't remember if it's the... Yeah, but it's a, it's a ton compared to like... Yeah, you are, you are getting... Fourth edition guy. Well, and that, okay, so actually, so that, that's a good way to think about it. So if the way you think of the game, the in terms of like uh, the, the throughput of power, is that kind of part of it too? Like you know, the wizard has yeah, a counter yeah. spell? Okay. Right, so I want my wizard to be not blowing the board up, but I want him to be able to do things off the, t- you, know, off, you know, in the role-playing area. So the, the ritual area, right? Which the rituals seem to be fluctuating back and forth in next right now. Uh, you know, somewhere, somewhere. I mean, I like I watch them. Like, you know, it's like, oh, that's ritual. Okay, I can make that ritual. Then they're not a ritual, and it's like they're, they're not. You know? Yeah. And it's like, so I mean, the whole one through nine, I, can, you know, I'd rather have them like you have a, you have seven powers. You know, that's what they are. That's what you have. Uh, you know, get three at first. And, you know, the rest of you go up level and then have like a core of abilities. Yeah, so we have, we are looking at doing uh, alternate systems for magic. And that's where that, that, that might come in, right? Where you can feel, okay, we, 
there, there's the, the traditional D&D uh, casting system. There might be like a spell point system, like a power system, where you have that, that limited number of spells that you can cast them repeatedly, things like that. So yeah, that's definitely something we want to look at. Because we, we know definitely like people you know, in fourth edition, one of its strengths for a lot of DMs was that ability to say, hey, the, the wizard can do cool stuff, and, but you can't, his peak isn't as high as it used to be, but his floor isn't as low as it used to be. There's like a nice cruising altitude. And, and that would be one of the things we'd want to address through an alternate spell casting system. Okay, yeah, because it's like when the ranger's got his spells back, I'm like, well, that's terrible. It, that lets him slot in. Whatever crazy stuff gets made up. Yeah. Now, in the future, you know, uh, well, and then, but that, yeah, sorry. That's a big thing we have to keep an eye out, though, for is we want to make sure that when we're looking at spells, we are balancing them correctly. That we're not letting the game breaking spells get in, that we're, we're keeping an eye out, especially like for save or die, things that really change the game, making sure that things are appropriately leveled and things aren't getting too out of control in terms of what they can do. It's an interesting balancing act for us because there are some players like the flexibility, like they like having that, the ingenuity to do something crazy with a spell or things like that. So it's a little bit of a balancing act for us. The um, Because some DMs like the chaos, some DMs don't want that chaos coming from that area of the game. So that's definitely an area where I think with rules modules and, and approaches to the game and how you structure a campaign that, that, that we can help you out. Uh, when these modules, I mean, when are we going to start to see some of the ideas for this stuff? So most of that, so that's gonna be part of the next phase of our playtesting, but that's something so so legends and lore, things like that. We're gonna just keep doing those columns and so you'll see previews there. The uh, a lot of that's really for us is just gonna come down to getting the math right. Like once we have our core math done, essentially you can kind of imagine magic is like in its very core sense, this is like set, just an algebraic equation, and all we're just doing is changing the proportion of how powerful certain things are. So so a lot of that you'll see it previewed in legends and lore. So and a lot of it's because the reason why that's not necessarily going out in the public is just we know for the rules modules, not everyone's interested in them. We don't want to end up in a situation where it's like, hey guys, play test this new idea. Well, we by nature, since it's not the core thing, we know that maybe like a third of our groups like it. Well, two thirds of the people playing it might end up saying, oh, I hate this. It's like, yeah, but we know you. it's not meant for you. So that's where the more focused testing helps us because we can, from our list of play testers we're working with now and people we want to recruit, we can say, hey, let us know up front, like, are you interested in the 4E style power system or for magic? And so yes. we know when, yeah, exactly. And so we can target our, we need to do more targeting play testing. And so that's why it's not being part of the public testing because we just don't want like people to download a pack and see, oh, I just, here are the rules for the really grim and gritty game. I hate that, this sucks. And they're giving us really negative feedback. And it's like, well, they, you, it's not aimed at you. So it's important for us to know our audience and who's play testing as we get into the more focused stuff. Okay. Yeah, because again, our, all of our focus right now is on the core game. and. Yeah. The core game, affirmed by uh, the playtest feedback, uh, incorporates the traditional approach to spells. Yeah. Uh, but again, that doesn't mean we are not considering, as we have uh, from the very beginning of this project, a way to provide way, you know, entirely different ways to interact with magic. Yeah. But it's just the the. One thing that's been really exciting, though, has been, a, has been the ability to bring back for a lot of people the traditional spells, but marry it to a level of flexibility that that spell system has never had before. Because, uh, you know, it's the first time that uh, at-will magic is built into the system. Uh, wizards have more flexibility in terms of how they cast their spells throughout the day. Uh, so it, it's kind of a, a fun hybrid of something that looks 
like a Vancean system, but actually in how it functions is not Vancean. And also paying attention to things like, well, we think about how spells affect people's campaigns. And so decisions are made along the way and are reinforced by feedback. Like, we don't have a detect evil spell in the game. Not, not as it has always been. Yeah. Because we know that that can be often a module breaker. Who murdered the Duke? Him, mm. right? Exactly. <laughs> the one younger guy. So like, when it comes time to look at the find the path spell, assuming that spell continues to exist, we have to look at what the impact of that spell effect is going to have on the game and just decide, is this going to make DMs and players' lives, is this going to make their games worse? And tweak it accordingly. Um, well, I've got a bit of a tricky question, okay. and I apologize to everybody here if this may have been addressed somewhere else at some point. But way back when the Indian Act was originally announced, there was some information, and again, this sort of just been a rumor for a while, that uh, people would be able to bring characters from any edition into it, second edition, third edition, 3.5, whatever, and that there was some way that that was going to be able to be done. Now, I, I don't know if you guys can give much information about it, but is that something that's actually being looked at? Yeah, so yeah, that, that, that's more just in terms of the conversions, that okay. making sure like we can take, as part of our testing, you can take a first, little char uh, sorry, first edition character, character from any edition, and find those analogs. So a great example would be like in our current approach to feats, we're kind of taking a little bit of attack on them. We might say, okay, hey, here's our feat list from Player's Handbook 1 from 3rd edition, and here are the corresponding feats in, in Next. Same thing for 4th edition. Hey, I'm playing a warden with these, you know, if I'm playing a warden, what should I look at? What subclass should I look at to take? Um, if, you know, some of them are obviously, I have Thunderwave, we should take Thunderwave, right? The trickier ones will be as you get further away from, like, the, the initial player's handbook. Like, here's a spell or a power that we just haven't converted yet, things like that. So, yeah, I think, I think some of those rumors misinterpreted uh, some statements we made about being committed to providing conversion guidance, yeah. not the same as, you know, here's my fourth edition character <laughs> play. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So, um, as far as, like, conversion <laughs> would go for that, is it something we see as a separate supplement? Would it be included in the core rules? It, it, it's to, anything for conversion, we would make free. Like, we would want you to be, hey, you want to grab it, and, and it would just have a point. Because really, what it would just be a pointer from, like, hey, I have this, what is it now? So it should be a pretty, pretty direct process. The, uh, and some of it would be just like, hey, if you have a fifth level fighter, here's how you, you know, just go figure out your, new, your hit points and things like that. So the, um, And there's some subtleties to it. So, like, if you have a fourth edition or third edition character, like, because right now our stat cap is at 20. And if you have a stat over 20, we might just sort of, you know, we'll have to give you some information. Hey, what does that mean? So, you know, well, am I getting another bonus? Or is it just, you know, well, you, you have a stat strength of 24, but really, really, that's, you're not losing anything by going to 20 or something like that. So. Okay, One of the problems that's been with the event in Costas was when you release supplements with additional spells that gets added to because that really grows the class yeah. fundamentally, yes. especially if they have some way of knowing what they're facing through gathering information or domination stuff. So will you try to keep the classes reasonably locked? Yes. Yeah, and, our, and, and our, 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 our approach to the spell list uh, has been heavily informed by that very issue. Uh, I mean, we, um, 
I know some people noticed that it was several packets ago that actually a number of spells vanished from the cleric list, and we've been almost ruthless uh, when it especially comes to the divine spellcasters about what we allow onto the list, because with the divine spellcaster in particular, as soon as it's a cleric spell, every cleric everywhere suddenly knows it. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we can allow a bit more flexibility with a class like the mage, because the spellbook mechanic means that just because a mage spell exists doesn't mean any mage in your campaign setting can actually cast it. Um, so with the mage, there's there's more DM involvement on you know well, you know because I mean it, it's very like the wish issue that was brought up earlier. A DM could just simply say, well, there is nobody who can teach you uh, the wish spell in this world, mage. Uh, but but again, on the miracle. Pardon. But the miracle. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. With 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 divine spellcasters in particular, um, we. We're very strict. Yeah. Because again, it's just suddenly it's on every cleric's list in every world everywhere. So one of the things we're trying to do with the cleric is keep the core cleric spell list very narrow. And then when we expand it, doing that more through new deities and domains. So there might be new spells being added, but it's only like if you're a cleric of this specific deity, now you can get this. Yeah. So you so you Commit to a certain path. Yeah, exactly. You're not just adding. You're not just adding it to an ongoing campaign. The other approach too, whatever that, that we want to take is like I used the example of a pirate campaign. You might find okay, there's ten new wizard spells or ten new generic cleric spells, but those are very clearly aimed at you're on a ship doing something. So control winds might be you know what, if I'm not on a boat, the spells are very useful. If I'm on a ship, it's great because now I can maneuver my ship around and I'm controlling the winds and I'm, you know, or I'm stopping someone else's ship. But when you look at it, like if I'm in a dungeon, the spell's not actually doing anything for me. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. And we have to make sure, like, we feel like, oh, it's like, you know, in, in, that's a good example because what we could say is with control winds, like, there are some cool ways you can use it, but we think in terms of a sea battle, what's the best time to use this spell? And that's how we'll look at its power level. So we can say, oh, control wins. Like, I can do some cool stuff with it. But it's a third-level spell because in a sea battle, we see it as the equivalent of fireball. Like, if I fireball someone's ship, I'm going to destroy their crew. Just like if I can just stop a ship in its tracks and it's helpless, I'm essentially taking that ship out of the fight. So try to make sure if we do a new spell, we're matching the optimal use of the spell, especially for the utility stuff, against how we're going to determine its power level. So. Yeah, I also, I also want to point out that it's an area where our ability to cast a spell on higher level and get a better effect is really doing a lot of work for us because it means that we have to design fewer spells in general. Yeah, exactly. Um, we still need as many spells. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Hey, so, um, I know it's not necessarily the focus, and it's not necessarily obvious to something that we've seen in the playtest packets, but we've seen backgrounds. Are there any other ideas or anything that works for social conflict or uh, characterization party conflict and things like that, like things to encourage less active players to be a lot more active in characterization and role play and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, so we worked out, um, we've been working on some other systems and mechanics that you haven't quite seen yet. Uh, we've got some interactional, or some just basic stuff for LPMs, understand how to adjudicate an interaction with an NPC where characters are making charisma checks and things like that. But we've also been working on some stuff for role-playing that uh, Mike mentioned in Legends and Lore, where we, in addition to like being an alignment, you might also define an ID 
appeal and a flaw and what we call a bond for your character. And these are all things that, that help you help guide your role playing and help tie you to the world and stuff like that. And so we're continuing to experiment with that. We want it to be both a light touch and a really versatile tool that will encourage people to you know, jump in and, and role play the characters, but doesn't get in the way of you know, just a traditional, like, we sit around, we go talk to the guy, and we just talk, right? And so we, we don't want it to be obtrusive, but we want it to be the tool that's there for you to use if you if you have uh, if you have need. The other thing we're working on, and you can smack the microphone out of my mouth if I'm not supposed to. It's not in your mouth. Uh, <laughs> there we go, now I can smack it out. Uh, we're also looking at uh, fleshing out the backgrounds even further than they are right now, and really expanding those to fill a lot of the uh, space that is often occupied by even like skills and even some like story-based beats and things like that. Really fleshing out the backgrounds a little more so that it's a, a potentially, if you want it to be, more significant part of your character. Because I think we found people responded really well to being able to say, "Oh, I got this background," which means. X about how my character fits into the world. If we can enable more of that, I think yeah. that's just a, a net gain for us. So are some of these systems going to be mechanized in any way? Like you get action points for using something negatively that would hurt your character in a way? Like yeah, and we're trying to keep some sort of light touch mechanics. Um, in, the, in the live stream game, I started showing how um, we, had, we basically say something like, okay, we have this inspiration mechanic where if your if you're, uh, flaw or your bond comes into play in a way that maybe uh, impacts you negatively, eyes to the end can give you a little boon that says, okay, you, know, you role played your character even though it was to your detriment. Here's the things so that later you can turn around and say, okay, you know, I can get advantage on a check or an attack or something like that because it's related to this other role playing trick. Yeah. Right? And it's basically a little thing that I can hand out to the DM to say, Good job, and now later when you role play your character in the positive way, here's a thing that you can benefit to. But we want to keep it pretty light touch, I think. Right. Yeah. So where I really like the uh, inspiration mechanic to land is it's a way, it's the especially the, the basic game, is the first thing where a DM can start developing as a distinct style. Because you can imagine you sit down at a table and a DM says, inspiration, I never give that out. I don't use it. Like, okay, we're dealing more with the guys like, look, the world's just gonna do what it does, and Play act all you want, you're stuck, right? You can picture the other DM who's like, hey, I'm throwing it out all the time. If you say something funny, if you're in character, and it's more, that's that DM style. So it's that first step of saying, part of DMing is establishing your personal style. And then we go into like the, you know, the DMG type thing. Then you can start messing with mechanics and go even deeper and start, you know, it's kind of like the inspiration mechanic is the first step, and then other things can then be built off of it that go deeper. You know? Or you just you don't use it, and that's saying something about the kind of campaign you want to run. So. Right, very cool. Thank you. Uh, quick question about, I guess I would use the term variety, because um, one of the things I was concerned about with more recent editions was uh, there was always, a, there's a very similar, straightforward, almost kind of over-the-top art style, I, I hate to put it that way, and I was also concerned because in, in recent editions, I keep seeing that price point going higher and higher, and back in the day, there would always be little books that you could get for 10 12 bucks, and I was just wondering if there's any address, if you guys could address that. The, um, so I don't want to get too much to the business side of things, but one of the things we, I think just as you go in the modern age, more digital publishing, I know we see this in the general trend in the book trade, in novels, that e-books are really taking a big chunk out of what used to be the paperback. You know, that once you get a lower price point, then you're getting more and more digital, just in terms of like when people are buying novels. 
So, and I think that in just talking to other friends of mine who work with other publishers and RPGs, I think a kind of similar thing might be happening in RPGs. But it's definitely a place we want to be because we know not, not everyone wants to spend a big chunk of money. You know, you look at Magic the Gathering, it's the other game we do, right? The, uh, that's just built on, you know, $4 booster packs bought at a time. So it's important, I think, for us to have a variety of price points and a variety of types of products because it isn't just a one-size-fits-all hobby. The, uh, as far as the art style, actually, we don't have John Shindahedi. He would be able to talk a lot more about it. The, um, what we really want is an art style that's evocative, that when you look at it, you get a sense of what the world of Dungeons & Dragons is. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the monsters we've talked about, Chris, like in our meetings, of like the way we've kind of thought about monsters and trying to make them feel more vivid and more like, oh, that's what I always thought it looked like kind of thing. Yeah, we've got a, this is really the first edition where we have worked as closely with the art folks, um, where they are giving us material that's inspiring our design. And we're saying, well, we're not gonna really tell you much about this monster. Show us what you got, give us some images, and we'll put them on top of that. Um, I'm trying to think of some specific oh, examples. Actually, a good, we had a discussion very early on, well, not very early on, earlier this year about overall art direction. I remember when we were kind of like, do we go more superhero or do we go more almost like Star Wars, where, you know, like the X Wing's kind of beaten up Luke Speeder. And we kind of felt more like the Star Wars end. It's more relatable, that it's less superhero and more like these are people in a, in a living, breathing world. And they can, I mean, obviously, when you get higher level, you're carrying a magic sword, a magic armor. But especially at the low and mid levels, you are more relatable as you know stuff you bought in the market or things like that. Yeah, everything you see has sort of a practical story behind it. There's a reason why it's there. Yeah. It's not just there for artistic ornamentation. Yeah. And that, I mean, that livable quality is something that has often appeared in D and D art in every edition. But there was particularly a lot of it uh, in first and second edition. I mean, I can, I always, when when we get on the topic of art, I always love to think of Larry Elmore's early Dragonlance images. And if you looked at the Heroes of the Lands, like you can tell they had actually gone adventuring in those clothes. You know, there were tears. There were, you know, you could see where there had been blade cuts and fights they'd been in. They actually had backpacks and and, and pouches. That's, that's more the direction we're going in. Stylistically, too, we're going in a very different direction so far as showing more about the environment. Um, focusing less on just characters standing, posing, and looking bold, but actually show us the world. Yeah, yelling from. Let's see, let's see every facet of the world of D&D, from yeah. dungeon interiors to landscapes to some of the greatest constructions that you might see built by dwarves, elves, whoever. Let's, let's do that. If you've looked at the Sundering artwork, the covers we've done, Richard Lee Byers' character, whose name I'm totally blanking on, but he's this pirate, and I think he's from Termish. And we've done a lot of work with the realms to really bring the cultures to life. And I, the way I think of it is, you think of the cantina scene in Starbucks, where if you're in Waterdeep or some of the trade hub, you could go into like the dockside bar and see people from all these different cultures across Faerun and, and get a real sense of the world. It's not just, everyone's not dressed in, you know, Western European garb, it's all kind of the same. It is. The clash of cultures. This is, I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler, but right now we're, we're working with John and his team to develop art tied to the theme of elemental evil and figure out what does the fire temple look like, what does the air temple look like, the water temple, the earth temple, what do the cultists look like, um, what do they wear, what do they carry, what contraptions have they built, what magical wonders do they have in their possessions. Uh, we're building all these things so that when people look at them, they know they're in a world and uh, I 
think that's a huge step forward for us artistically. Also, looking at books that have a combination of black and white and color art. Um, sometimes you lose something when you go all color. I'm trying to figure out ways to bring some of the old school black and, black and white back. Well, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you very much for answering our questions. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Uh, hi, I don't want to be short, so I'll try to be quick. But when I come to Gen and I talk to other gamers about my memories of D&D and things we really like, we don't talk about our favorite source book from an edition. It's I-6, it's Against the Giants, it's Dead God. Fourth edition to me kind of didn't have a very robust adventure support. Uh, so I'm kind of wondering as we move into next, will that adventure support expand or do you think we'll keep it more online? Yeah, no, we think adventures are really the heart of the, the heart of the game. And it's important to have really great engaging adventures because of what you described. It, it's the truth of DD. That people remember what they did in the game, not necessarily their build or the mechanics and things like that. So I think Burden Baldur's Gate is kind of our first step to really flexing our, our muscles in terms of creating new types of adventures and trying to really innovate there and really bring some great storytelling to the table. The, an analogy we use related to this sometimes is that it, it's very easy when we, we get too caught up in creating and then selling a bunch of game mechanics to essentially be selling uh, products full of ingredients. And the thing we love about selling fully fleshed out campaign settings or uh, really great adventures is instead we're selling like cakes. <laughs> instead of the, well, here's the flour. You know, yeah. Everyone likes cakes. Right? Yeah. I'd rather buy a cake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like that. I don't want cake. Yeah. You're more of a pie guy. I'm more of a pie guy. Uh, yeah, me too. The cake's not real. I have a question about backgrounds. I've been asked several times by some of my players that as they're evolving, your players are evolving. Yeah. <laughs> what are they turning into? <laughs> Charizard. Yeah, Charizard. <laughs> um, that their backgrounds, um, that they might have started out as you know, a priest and later on decide that they're going to leave that career um, and become an artist. What? <coughs> What kind of steps would you take to, to have that kind of change? That's something we're yeah, yeah. I talk about evolving our backgrounds a little bit. Um, one of the things I didn't mention is I also talked about the downtime system earlier. We're thinking about trying to tie our backgrounds in with our downtime system. So, for example, I started as a priest, but you know, through the course of the campaign, for some reason, I joined the thieves guild. Right? We might say like, okay, you can actually use your downtime to pick up things from the criminal background or something like yeah. that, so that they might not be quite so static, um, but then that's going to be completely up to you if you actually want to do that, or if you just want to be like, yeah, I used to be a priest, and then now I don't care anymore, right? And we also, the, a big part of the evolution of backgrounds is thinking about ways that that can come into play throughout the course of the campaign, as opposed to just like who you used to be. So if I'm a priest, I might be able to do things during downtime that non-priests can do. And this is all still in development, right? So nothing, nothing soon, but like it's something we're thinking about evolving backgrounds to do that. Thanks. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of with the DM here that was asking about the flexibility with the martial characters, and I'm going to take it a step further. So I understand that we've got some options with fighters. How about like the rangers, the paladins? Are we going to be able to see that sort of flexibility that we saw before the future? Is there some sort of affirmation we can get that there's going to be that consistent graduation of power? 
Yeah, oh, definitely, but as far as like, the overall class balance, I mean, that's a huge thing, especially for the wizard's spell list. I mean, that's really where a lot of that begins, to avoid the trap of the wizard always having the I-win button. Because like I mentioned kind of earlier, the question of the spell list, you know, if, if we have a spell, when we balance it, we want to assume it's optimal use. And I think a, pit, a trap we fell into in the past was we'd say, well, this spell, if you use it optimally, it's really 7th level, but we kind of assume you're not using it optimally most of the time, so we'll make it 4th level. And instead, we're saying, no, if this is the best case situation using this spell, where should it land power-wise? So I think that's the first step. And then the other side of it is with, uh, especially with the Ranger and Paladin, make sure those spells that like, we are giving you are speaking to what those classes do. You know, rather than just like, well, the Paladin gets like, you know, Consecrate Water and these kind of things that are more story-driven. Things that are like, no, Paladins are really good at destroying evil, you know, foes and things like that. So you want to have spells and abilities that really speak to that. And, and, and you'll see a sign of that already in the Ranger, where in the most recent packet we added in the Hunter's Mark spell. Um, and so there, there, there are glimmerings of, of where things are headed. Um, now, for a full-on 4E-style progression, it, it is unlikely we'll see that exact implementation ever in the core game. But uh, we, we certainly want, as Mike said, all, all of the classes to feel that they have, uh, in different situations, exciting ways they can contribute in an adventure that is appropriate to their class. And, and we have thought a little bit about like, where you get those spells. Like, I know uh, Peter Lee, one of the, the, the guys working the game, is talking about, well, what if you move, say, the ranger spells up to a little bit higher level? And so when you actually make your build choice, you might, and this is theoretical, but like you might choose between a companion or spells, or spells or something else. We kind of felt that spells so far have been kind of core. Like, I don't know if we'll go that far in the core game, but it's something we have kind of thought about, like, where should those spells sit? Because we know we do have a chunk of feedback saying, you know, can I have a paladin without spells? I'd rather be doing, like, more smite evils, things like that. Can I have a ranger without spells who's more a weapon master and doing more tricks and stuff or with a, with a beast companion, things like that? So, so you would say that we're definitely going to see more flexibility going forward? We, the, sorry, as far as when you see flexibility, like as far as spells or not spells, or? It's just more options. Oh, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely, yeah. That, that, that's something which, it's just a matter of like what the magnitude of those options are. Like, could we have a ranger with who has no spells? Like, that's still a question, like, we're leaning toward no now, but it's something which, as we get our final feedback, that we will make a final determination. The, also, when it comes to options, um, particularly when you're coming from a 4th edition environment, uh, it, it's important to keep in mind that in D&D Next, there will often be fewer options than we were used to playing in 4th, but we're, what we're aiming at is that, that the options that you have are bigger. Uh, so, so rather than having sort of five buttons to push, you might have three, yeah. but what those three buttons do is more dramatic. Be, uh, because because we, want, we want the choices that you have to be meaningful, to have big impact, and to be very iconic. Because, um, I mean, it, it is very cool in fourth. I mean, we, we've been playing fourth as recently as last week that we completed yeah. our campaign. And yeah, we, we, 30th level. yeah, we played from first to 30th level. We just completed our, our campaign uh, a few weeks ago. It was awesome. Um, one of the things when you're sort of comparing op, sort of the option environment in different editions is to also consider what is the weight of those options. Yeah. And when I look at you know the spells that my 30th level wizard had in Chris's campaign just a few weeks ago, 
sure, I had some cool options, but the differences between them weren't actually that significant. I mean, the, you know, one of them might have been I do you know, X damage of a particular type and push X number of squares. The other one was I do Y damage of a particular type and slide them uh, Z squares. Sure, those are different options, but the differences between the two are not dramatic. And, and while, again, in the, in the 4E environment, those, those options make sense and can be a lot of fun, uh, in the D&D Next environment, it has made sense for us, given how the classes progress, given the, the fact that we have 20 levels rather than 30, we've wanted to make sure that we, A, don't overload you with options, and that, again, that the options that we give you are really meaty, and that you know when you do it, like, I just did something that is, is special to my character. You know, it, it, this, is, this is a sign of me being a ranger. This is a sign of me being a paladin. Uh, or, you know, watch out, the barbarian has shown up. Um, that kind of thing. And we've quite a lot of those different options together, too. Like, we've talked about the thieves coming action on the podcast a while back, where basically that is to get an extra action, you can only do these certain things. In a lot of ways, if you were to design that as a power, you would actually design it as like four different powers that would give it to you as one thing, right? Yes. And so when we look at that, you know, oh, you look like feats in the last time or anything? No, I don't know why. Okay, if you look at the feats in the last time, you can see a really good example of this where we made those feats really bigger, meatier things that do, like, I want to be an archer, so I want to take the archery feat. Well, that feat is now bigger. Yeah, and, yeah, it's it's giving you what uh, in third or fourth might have been three or four feet, and you're getting it in like, this one big kapow. Okay. All right, thank you. Okay. It was an adventure comic too, so I was waiting up to do some adventures. Uh, my question is, monsters. First of all, I love your old monsters, and I really like your articles on monsters. And I'm just thrilled every time I read one of those topics. Just you're really on track with that. Cool. Thanks. Uh, I did have a comment though about the first edition or type one, type two demons and things like that. I will, and if you look at the back of Dragon, the best of Dragon, Volume One, there's an article there about how you can construct your own demons or whatever. And I just want to throw that idea out. Is there any way you can do all of that? Because I feel like in the abyss, there's just one type one demon about yes. all the same one. This is chaos. They're yep. all they've got zillions of different ways. It's, it's just giving a general category of power. So one of the things I want to be able to do with like we mentioned this a little bit earlier, like dragons and demons, things that have names, that you have a lot of ways to customize them. So like every Vrock type one, you know, has they have names. They're individuals. They all have a trick up their sleeves. They have different ways they can do things, and really extending that to a lot of our different, like dragons, a lot of our monster types. So yeah, that's definitely something. Because I, I think that's what keeps the game fresh. We don't need to make a bajillion new monsters. We can just give you some nice variability in existing monsters. So let's call. We have two last questions on that because we're at less than ten minutes. So let's. You got just in time. Yeah. <laughs> this is probably a yeah, less interesting one for most people, but you have brought up on the art a little bit, and some being black and white, some being color. I was just curious if you had any discussions at this point about uh, using a consistent theme for one or the other would be used. Um, as an example, maybe the line of black and white, black and white artwork would be uh, when something's being looked at from maybe a biologist or architect standpoint. Kind of saw things similar to that. Three point five. Yeah, things like um, almost like blueprints yeah. kind of deal. Uh, yeah, we haven't uh, had detailed discussions with John Shindahedi, our senior art director, about how specific styles of art will be used in products. Um, mostly we're just in the very preliminary discussions about it. Uh, but 
And that may be the topic for a future Dragon's Eye View column that John does. I will bring it up. Because I don't know whether you know it or not, but one of the regular features on our website is this Wednesday column that John writes where he's basically talking about the art of D&D. And he'll put topics out there and then we'll have polls and things like that. And we can ask people, you know, what is their ideal balance between this style art versus that style art? And how would you use this? And how would you use that? Uh, definitely pass that along there. Um, the last question, so, so no pressure. Oh, no pressure. <laughs> um, in the fourth edition, the characters have dailies and counters and wills, um, which makes them enduring. You can go for a while. You know, you're not going to bring your dailies at every encounter, but you're going to bring your counters at wills at every encounter, right? But you can go for a bit. Now, all the classes are the same structure, which is just like spells and next. But those look like they're almost all dailies in terms of the canter for that wills, um, which makes them not as, they can't go for as long. And then once you shoot your dailies, if you yeah. take the spells, you're done. Which is made as 3.5, although you can have all the longer spells. But still, at higher levels, it's not as important as 3.5. But is that something that next? Yeah, so there's two ways we're, we're, we're approaching it. So on one hand, we have, our casters all have access to Atwell spells, just like just like in fourth. And some of our classes have encounter-style powers, like the monk right now with key. The um, one of the things we found was that if hey, how long can you adventure before like the players feel like they're out? In looking at our you know playtest feedback, it really kind of depends on the DM and the approach to the table. So a lot of our, I think a lot of groups just kind of self-regulate and go, hey, we are going to try to go as far as we can, so we want to try to shepherd resources and stuff. But that is just a play style that people kind of embraced. So what I, what I want to be able to do is, like we talked earlier, how like things like short rest and long rest, like we're just using those terms rather than like one hour rest or eight hour rest, to give DMs the option to go, hey, there's a book I used to have called The Pearl Cookbook back when I was a coder, and I know not everyone thinks of Pearl Coders as coders, but it was one of my many hats I wore for the... Uh, and the interesting thing about it was it would just say things like, hey, do you need to write a, a script that can send an email of a data, whatever, some data is generated or something like that? You could just look it up and say, I need to send an email from a script. Well, here's how to do that. One of the things in terms of models I want to be able to do is say things like, hey, do you, do you notice that the, your, your, the party is running out of resources too soon? Like you're not, like here's your adventure. And like, okay, it's going to be yeah, one day to get through this and you're expecting hey, it's going to be a big, you know, giant final battle. Oh, but halfway through, the party keeps running out of spells and hit points, and they keep going back to town to rest. Being able to very directly say, hey, GM, here's how you can get around that. Change the length of your short rest. You know, uh, change some of your monster, your XP budgeting, things like that. Change how hit points come back, things like that. Make a few tweaks to the system so you can address those local issues that are coming up in your game while using basically the same core system. So that be something kind of like you say, okay, in my campaign, the default, a, long, a short rest is an hour. In my campaign, it's 15 minutes. And then it might be, hey, you know, it's still kind of coming up. Well, okay, one of the things we can say is for each short rest, you can get a first level spell back or something like that. But that means that in your encounter budgeting or how you think of your adventures, like maybe you want to give, like, have the capture be a little tougher, and here's how you can do that. So kind of that interplay and really treating DMing in a very practical way of, I found this problem, and it's a problem we know that, that is, it's not everybody's table, but it's common enough, and then find ways to solve that. So. This is the archives, and I was looking at just the basis classes and stuff like that. I mean, we've got the arcane recovery and the wizard. Yeah. It's exactly that kind of thing. When you take a rest, you can get some spells back. It's an attempt to help with that without having to make that something we do, like sweeping across every class and every class. 
Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you guys for taking two hours out of your Gen Con to uh, come and ask us questions. Uh, we really appreciate it. We really appreciate everyone taking part in the play test and taking the time to come and ask us some questions. It's been great. And uh, we were doing this panel again tomorrow at 10 a.m. We will not feel bad if everyone instead goes to take part in the grand rush into the exhibit hall. It's cool. We understand priorities. I'd probably be over the exhibit hall. No, the DI. I was a fan here, but no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so we're doing this again. If you want to ask more questions, if it's something we didn't get to, or if anyone just says, hey, I want to ask the Wizards guys a question, we'll be here at the same room tomorrow, 10 a.m. to noon. Otherwise, online, uh, I'm on Twitter. My handle is Mike Merles, one word. Uh, I try to answer every single question that gets asked of me, uh, and I think I mostly succeed. So. Feel free to bombard me with questions. I may have to say things like, I can't answer that, sorry. But uh, yeah, I am totally available on Twitter. I try to, it's part of my work day. Like every day I try to spend a half hour just going through answering tweets and trying to get information out there. So, because you guys have done a really awesome job. Thank you so much for taking part in the play test. We literally could not have done this without you. And Will we get a family update tomorrow? <laughs> yes, I gotta go call my wife after this and figure out what's wrong with my dog, so. <laughs> Yeah, emo dog strikes again, poor little guy. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.